You are now listening to the Minority Trailblazer Podcast. Let the story begin. One time for the lovers, two times for the ladies, three times for the brothers, four times for the babies. Do you love her? 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 One time for the lovers, two times for the ladies, three times for the brothers, four times for the babies. Do you love her? 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 Brown skin, love a brown skin, love a brown. Brown skin, love a brown skin, love a brown. She my brown skin, love a brown skin, love a brown. She my brown skin, love a brown skin. Hold me down. Welcome to the Minority Trailblazer Podcast, and I'm your host, Greg E.O.D., Culture Change Agent. On this show, you interview young, successful minorities in a variety of fields to educate, empower, and inspire our current and future generation of leaders. And as I always say, it's season four. Episode four, I got my brother on the line, and I tell you, this podcast is going to be phenomenal for those that have startup business, those that are bootstrapping stuff, and those that are in need of financial advice that's going to take you to the next level. Because the guy who got on his phone, he's working for some phenomenal, huge corporations, and now he has his own software solutions to help you take your finances to the next level. I'm talking about systems, principles, practices, one-on-one advice. Yeah, I'm excited, man. He's going to add a lot of value. So make sure you stay tuned to the end of the show and also during the middle because there is a special discount for Minority Trailblazer podcast listeners. So if you are inspired by the show, you want to reach out, make sure you check the web on the YouTube, send me a message, send him a message, and we will make sure you get your 15% discount and a consultation for the low. Man, before I get into the episode, I want to do a couple housekeeping things. First, first, first. If you are listening, you don't got no minority, no minority trailblazer hoodie, you don't got no t-shirt, you don't got no crew neck, man, make sure you go onto the website, minoritytrailblazer.com, and make sure you sign in. Remind you, we had no ads on this podcast. We haven't did any of that, man, so please make sure you support the brand, support the product. I want to see you in your minority trailblazer hoodie in the fall because you know what's getting cold, so make sure you go ahead and grab that at minoritytrailblazer.com. Oh, September 24th, that's my birthday, I turned 28, so make sure, hey, you want my address, want to send me some stuff? I got you, I got you, I got you, but also, too, I will be releasing the first round of speakers for the Minority Trailblazer Conference 2018, when I tell you it's going to be a big, 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 big conference, so make sure you grab your early bird tickets, because the price will rise, and all that stuff, the website updates, everything else, you can find at www.mtbconf.com, and I'm telling you, this is going to be one conference for the ages, I can't wait to um, release the speakers and update you on a lot of great things, man, but I'm telling you, if you missed the tour, you're going to be there for the conference, side note, I will be in Oakland, California, I will be in Dallas and Austin, Texas, as well as Boston, September 30th. I'm going to go ahead and say it. September 30th, Minority Trouble is Alive, Harvard edition. We will be in Boston. Free tickets, live and direct. We got some powerful, powerful, powerful guests and speakers lined up, so make sure you attend. And last but certainly at least, and we segue into this podcast, man, because this guest, he's going to have so much value. I can't wait to get him on, man. Great story, real chill guy. 
I want to talk about authenticity, right? Real quick, real quick, man. My brother, my brother, my brother. I love him to death. Last two days, he's been driving me crazy. He's in my house. I have a microphone. He doesn't have a microphone. Don't tell me why he work at McDonald's, has his own car, getting a check, and has it invested in a $100 microphone. That's neither here nor there. But he's been in my house two days producing music, making songs. And yesterday, he said before he went to school, like, yo, G Hill, listen to this song I got. I was like, all right, I'll check you out. So I listened. I ain't gonna lie. In some context, my brother is a senior in high school. He's a rapper. I was like, these songs are okay. Like, just, just listen to my little brother curse and talk about women and, and drugs and all this stuff. But outside of that, the, the song was okay. But the biggest thing I heard was that, yo, you sound like a lot of other guys. And as I talked to him, I didn't want to tell him like that because, I mean, I'm trying to work on how I say stuff to my, my siblings. I said, yo, little bro, I love the flow. It's growing, right? But my biggest thing is, as you, as you grow in this space, man, try to rap from your optics. Let's be real. Your title is Trap Wave. You ain't been in nobody's trap. I know you do. You lived in a two-story household your whole life. You got a car <laughs> and you got a license in high school. Like, you, you're good, bro. You go to a private school at that. The tuition costs more than my whole AT, AT tuition. But side note, he got a sponsorship for that. But that's neither here nor there. I said, so I get what you're talking about and the content. It's a flowy. But if you want longevity in this game, I, I would suggest you, 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 you wrap through your optics. Wrap your optics of being at a private school, but you don't come from that background. You don't come from money. Primarily white school where there's drugs, alcohol is epidemic, and it gets pushed up. It's such a great school and whatnot. And the stuff that you have to deal with as far as working with people that, are, that come from different backgrounds. I mean, I went to this school, everybody and their mama talking about 300 Benzes, um, Lexuses, jeeps big boy trucks i'm like good god these are students 16 17 year olds yo pulling up on cats and i'm like i know he has to go through a lot of struggles he's not an athlete he's not a he's smart but i mean he really don't apply himself in school so rap from those lyrics and, and build your own thing people want to know who jonathan white is i read the book kevin hart's book which you should definitely read and the biggest thing the shift he had is comedy because when he first started he was good he had great content but the thing is and he was getting he was getting booked everybody loved him but everybody loved this skit. They didn't love Kevin Hart. And when it comes to selling movies, selling tickets and whatnot, he wasn't selling out shows where he had lined just by his own self because he didn't really add anything to his content. He had a manager that told him after he had a set and Kevin Hart thought he killed. Like everybody was laughing. Everybody was crying and cr cracking up in laughter. And he said, yo, that sucked. And Kevin Hart was like, what you mean that sucked? He was like, yo, that sucked because he didn't say anything that was individual about your life. About what you got going on. All the, and if you read a little bit in this book, Kevin Hart had a lot going on with his wife, um, his girlfriend, a lot of stuff. But he never he never talked about it. And as he grew and he took off in his career, as you listen to a lot of Kevin Hart now and, and, and watch his videos, I mean, a lot of the context comes from his everyday life. That's how what made Kevin Hart. That's why Kevin Hart has fans and he's not just another black comedian. And I tell this to say as I, as I get into the show a lot of you that are listening, a lot of you that listen to my podcast every week, that eat these personal development books, that take these courses and all that good stuff, I want you to focus on as you continue to grow in whatever space you want and finding your authentic self, finding what differentiates you, make it come to reality. This podcast, I don't say I want to do an hour podcast, I want to do a 30 minute podcast. I say I want to do a podcast that I feel right about and I'm going to put it out and now it's become my thing. Authenticity has become my thing. That's what I do. That's why I get paid. That's what I get booked to do as speaker, as a podcast, as a writer. That is it. That is my niche. And I realized that and there's so many people like the Oprahs and all these trailblazers of the world, they get paid by being themselves. 
Not trying to be anything else. And of course, you might start off as a blueprint somebody else. But as you begin, as you as you work on your, your, your week, look at your job. Look at your parenting style. Look at your business and ask yourself, is this really you or is this what society or Harvard Business Group told you to do or what your parents told you to do or what your grandparents did to your students? Like in every aspect of your life, ask yourself, is this originally set up for you to win? Not society's version of you, not the version you think you are, who you really are set to win. And let that lead. So um, I want to jump into this podcast and make sure, make sure, make sure at the end of the podcast is going to be a link or a promo code for everybody that listens because this brother I have on the line, I'm talking about West Point grad, Darden School of Business, which is one of the top schools in the country, grad, Goldman Sachs alum who bootstrapped his company and started off with and was able to raise over $750,000 worth of funds to get his company off the ground, custom software, coaching to get your finances in check for everybody. And we got promo codes at the end. We got consultations and everything else, man. So I can't wait to to get into the show. So read this intro. So he is the CEO of My Financial Answers, a personal financial coaching company that helps people make sense of their financial lives. The company combines compassionate expertise with a unique technology platform to provide people the financial guidance they need when they need it the most. From student loans and everyday budgeting to retirement decisions and health savings, no personal financial question is out of bounds. He started his career in financial services at Goldman Sachs as a wealth manager to ultra high net worth client. I'm talking about 10 mil plus. He left the Wall Street firm to build a successful boutique financial planning firm where he realized two things. First, most families in America do not have access to affordable, high-quality, and holistic financial guidance that they need. And two, employers have a unique opportunity and great incentive to help these same people move their personal finances forward. So as we begin this podcast, man, we're going to talk, get deep, deep, deep into what you can do to turn your financial future around and also how he created this product, this service, this industry in itself. Not the industry, but the service to really uh, make make great financial decisions affordable for everybody. He graduated from the U.S. Military Academy at West Point and earned his MBA at the University of Virginia's Darden School of Business. He and his wife, Leslie, are the proud parents of three children and reside near Philadelphia, man. So without further ado, I would like to introduce CEO of My Financial Answers, my brother, my personal finance guru, Benjamin Pitts to the Minority Trailblazer podcast. Welcome to the show. Hey, Greg. Thanks for having me. Thanks for that nice introduction. Uh, I'm excited to be here with you. No doubt. No doubt. Do they call, they call you Ben or Benjamin? Ben is fine. All right. Cool, 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 cool. Man, so as we always do, we start the show off with a quote and a story about how our guests use this quote in their everyday life. So, Ben, take us away. Yeah, yeah. No, actually, I, I, I love looking at quotes. I actually always... Uh, I'm fascinated by how people use those uh, use quotes to kick off blogs and mm-hmm. and landing pages and things like that. And I actually came across a quote recently. Uh, I think that it, it sort of sums up uh, the way I look at life. It's not something I've necessarily lived by from a quote perspective, but uh, now that I see it, I relate with it. And uh, it's actually from Tony Robbins. I'm not a Tony Robbins fan. I've actually never listened to any of his <laughs> stuff, but I certainly know who he is. And uh, his quote is, uh, the only limit to your impact is your imagination and your commitment. Uh, period. And, uh, you know, I, I just think it's so true for, a, uh, for any entrepreneur, um, you know, imagination is sort of what, what, what creates, um, you know, the desire to go out and, and create something from nothing, 
Uh, and but it really is the commitment uh, that allows an entrepreneur to see it through. The commitment to uh, to plan, uh, to try something new, uh, to ask questions of people that have done it before, um, to execute, uh, to to fail, and then pick it up and try it again. Uh, and really just to uh, to do, um, you know, Greg, I look at what you've done. I've kind of been a listener of yours for uh, for quite a while. I don't listen to every single show, but I try to listen on drives. And, you know, between what you've done and, and, and watching your, uh, you know, your business grow uh, and, and also the entrepreneurs that uh, that come on and speak with you. You know, I think this is kind of what ties all of the entrepreneurs together, you know, having an imagination and a, and a commitment to see uh, to see those ideas through and, and, and uh, actually get it done. So um, I love that quote. Yeah, I love that quote as well, man. So I want to start the show off a little different because um, after reading your bio and doing a little research on you, I know we're going to dig deep and we're going to give a lot of information to our audience. But I want to level that out real quick so the audience don't get get too lost and get too unachievable because for an audience that aren't familiar with the financial world and just business like Goldman Sachs is one of if not <laughs> one of the most powerful financial corporations in the world Darden School of Business is one of the top school of business in the world West Point is not something you just bump around and get into I mean Coach K Coach K went there right he did yep the Coach K I mean so many other prolific not only in sports and business but generals in the army in the in in the world have attended these uh these academies so um I want to start off with a failure this is I haven't really I usually wait to the middle of the pie a middle of the shows and end the show but I want to just start clean start fresh and I want to start off with a failure before before you went on your entrepreneurship journey so if you can just share with our audience um and I know don't please don't get caught on the failure part because a lot of the people don't really believe in the failure word. But um, share with the audience, man, like something that's this this pivotal that um that challenged you early in your career that allowed you today to be as as vibrant and as uh, forthcoming as you are. Yeah, yeah, no, that's uh, that's a great question. I actually I I can remember um, very distinctly uh, what I, what I perceived at the time to be. Uh, my biggest failure. Uh, I was actually at West Point. Uh, I was just starting my my senior year. Uh, I'd spent three years at West Point, and you know it's a it's a tough road. You show up a a few weeks after you graduate from high school. You spend the summer there, and you really don't leave a whole a uh, whole heck of a lot between uh, between that day when you show up and when you graduate. You know a few a few vacations. Um, but you know, of course, when you go to West Point, everyone goes, and, and the expectation is that you'll serve five years in the Army. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's why you're there. I, I, I thought I would spend 30 years in the military. I never saw myself in any kind of a desk job, if you will, and uh, you know, just thought my, my goal was to be a general, to be a leader in the Army. And uh, interestingly enough, I was diagnosed with a with a spinal condition, uh-huh. uh, a, a, gene- a genetic genetic degenerative condition that. You know, it was an automatic discharge for me. And, you know, at the time, I'm going into my senior year. Uh, I had done well. I was the captain of what's called the lightweight football team or sprint team. Uh, it's a regular football team. We just had a weight limit, varsity sport. <laughs> uh, had done well, you know, academically. I'd done well physically and done well from a military perspective. That's the three ways that you're actually graded uh, at, at West Point. And here I am going into senior year when we're choosing what what army branch do we go into? Uh, where do we go? You know, are we going to Hawaii or Alaska or, you know, Italy? Where are we going in the world? Everyone's celebrating. And, uh, you know, I find out this news that I'm not going to be commissioned as an officer in the army. 
Um, and at the time it was, uh, you know, kind of devastating. I look back and, you know, I, I can I probably at certain points over the next few years, actually, um, <clears throat> I wouldn't say I was clinically depressed, but had this underlying feeling of, uh, of just, uh, you know, failure. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I kind of look back at it now it was no fault of my own, but it was that first feeling that I had a goal. I wanted to, to achieve something and, 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 you know, kind of, uh, I guess fell flat on my face and, mm-hmm. Ultimately, though, I look back at that. It was my first experience being forced into the position of being a classic entrepreneur, mm-hmm. you know, having a problem and having to figure that out. And for me, um, you know, at West Point, there's no career services. There's no one there helping you to figure out what job you're going to do because, of course, you know, there are a thousand people in our class and 995 of them are going to the army. <laughs> yeah, there's, the no, army. there's no, there's no, like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, uh, so, you know, what it taught me though, it taught me to, to, uh, to rely on and leverage a network of people and, and, and not be afraid to pick up the phone and call and ask questions. So I learned to cold call actually while I was at, while I was at West Point. Um, and, uh, you know, I was picking up the phone, calling, you know, West Point graduates that had graduated in the, you know, in the 80s. Uh, or the 70s and asking them about their careers and asking them about what they did when they got out of the army um, and, you know, having to ask them for, you know, some sort of help and assistance. And I think that's the first step for a lot of entrepreneurs. Of course, you need to be able to figure things out on your own, but you have to be willing to sort of dig in, do some research and ultimately pick up the phone and ask somebody for something. Um, and so, you know, I, I don't look back at it and, and think, you know, I had really no control over that. Uh, I did graduate, um, you know, walked with my class, uh, shook uh, at the time as President George Bush, mm-hmm. uh, his hand. But, uh, you know, it felt like a big failure at the at the time. And I still, you know, when I show up at, at class reunions, I graduated in 02. It was at, one of the one of the things that made it feel so much like a failure was 9-11 happened the first oh, two weeks of my senior year. And so everyone sort of I mean, that's why you're in the army to serve to to defend the country. Um, but, uh, you know, I did, I, I did, I did graduate, but I go back to reunions and, and sort of feel like there's a piece of that experience that, um, that I'm still missing, right? Mm-hmm. I didn't serve my country after, um, and frankly went to, went there on the, on taxpayer dollars. Yeah. Uh, so there's, there's always this underlying, like, man, I wish I'd have been able to do that. But, um, uh, but you know, I do credit, I do credit that experience with, um, with giving me sort of the, I think an entrepreneurial mindset. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm guessing it might've been there before that, but sort of brought it out of me, if you will. Man, I love that. And, um, I could definitely, I could definitely understand that sentiment because, um, if you, if anybody followed my journey, it took me seven years to graduate and I was on track to graduate in four. And then I had to go back to spring and make spring and fall graduations for the next three years and seeing class pace that graduated. And I'm, I'm still there next year. I'm still there next year. I'm still there. And it's like, even now, like, when you graduate? I'm, I'm technically class of 2014. Like that's still still weird to me. Like I'm really class 2011, 2014, and I'm glad it's helped me in my career. It's given me a story, it's given me humility that I never, I, I wouldn't have had as soon. But it definitely, um, it definitely, I, I do go back and think about it. Like man, like it's, I, I, I didn't miss a moment because I stayed in college for far too long. But yeah. I had a question right there because it's been on my heart so much because you, you said something that was real critical. I want, I want you to break down with our audience that. Once you realized that you weren't going to the military, you had to lean on alumni and you didn't, you weren't necessarily in a point of leverage, right? So you had to call and ask for favor, ask for that. And I want you to break down, A, what was your strategy to say, okay, who to call? Once you got on the phone, how did you convey, um, how did you convey that, A, 
they should pick up and they should help you. And here's some context for this. And the reason why to, to, I, I asked this because, um, this morning I just got off the conversation, a call with the college guy. I, I don't know. And I respect the young guy, but I don't know. He called and said, Hey man, um, how you doing? Uh, man, I'm looking to get into the tech field and I know you do something. I saw a post online about the tech field and, um, I wanted to see if you can connect me with somebody. I said, dang, dang, bro. Like I said, and then, then he asked, like, what do you do? I said, you called me, right? And this is on me. I accepted a call early in the morning. He said, what do you do? Mm-hmm. And then he wanted a connection. And then and now on LinkedIn, on Facebook, on Twitter, because, you know, I get a lot of visibility because of the podcast and the speaking. So many people come out like, yo, I want, I want advice to speak. I want advice to podcast. I want advice to do all that. And some people, they do the right things. Like your email was phenomenal. Like people contact and they respect it. Some people just immediately, what can I get? What can I get? When I what can I get? So, can you please give some advice to my college student, my entrepreneurs, not even my entrepreneurs, my people in their career right now that want to reach out and get advice, get this guidance, or want something? How to successfully and how to do it? Yeah, no, that's uh, actually I think that is what I learned at such a young age, and, and partially through failing at it. Um, I mean, I think the fundamental thing that you need to do when you're asking anyone for anything, whether it's career advice or whether it's for, you know, help getting in uh, to some company for a job or whether it's a connection uh, to someone's common contact that you see on LinkedIn um, or, uh, you know, or, or even sales, right? When you're, when you're trying to sell something to someone, whether it's a product or a service, um, I think the fundamental thing that needs to be done is to put yourself in the shoes of the person that you're reaching out to mm-hmm. and, and legitimately ask what's in it for them. What can I do for them? How can I help them? Because people are inherently selfish, right? And, <laughs> um, you know, ultimately, uh, and you kind of have to be, particularly when you're in a position as a receiver of that call, when you're in a position of power, people are asking you for a lot of different things. And, you know, so you have to be able to, you, ha- you just have to be able to get their attention. Um, and so I think it's critical to, to do your research, number one, like understand who they are, what they're after, what motivates them, what makes them money, uh, what gets them from, uh, you know, how do they promote their products, uh, really what makes them successful. And if you do that research, you know, number one, understand what Greg does before you call him. You can then answer the question, what's in it for him and what do I have to offer? And I don't think that that offer, what you have to offer has to be anything grand, right? Mm -hmm. It usually is not. Um, but I think the offer has to be something that says, okay, this person gets me, they understand the world I'm living in. Um, there may be some immediate benefit or there may be like, Hey, if, if, you know, if this guy's successful, he might come back on my podcast. If this Mm -hmm. guy's successful, you know, he may make me look good. And so it doesn't have to be any immediate or, or monetary value. There just needs to be something in it that makes it interesting to the receiver of that call. And so, so it's understanding what's in it for them. And you have to obviously do your research in order to understand that. And then number two, I think you just have to be able to warm it up. I mean, <laughs> I, I think, it, you know, for me, I was lucky that the West Point network uh, back then and, and always has been very strong. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's, there's a, a, a natural affinity between me and some other West Point grad. And, you know, by the way, the, the, the disadvantage I have was every single one of those people I called had served in the army. and I did not. Mm. So there, there was a little bit of a disconnect there, <laughs> but, but I did have that commonality. They served at West Point that, you know, we lived in the same barracks. Um, you know, we, we studied the same courses. We, we had all the same pain, um, you know, pain and, and, and successes along the way. Um, and so I think 
it's kind of hard to reach out to people cold if you have absolutely nothing in common. Mm -hmm. And so I think when you're reaching out for assistance, you have to make sure that you, you have some commonality. It doesn't always have to be the school that you went to. It could be a former employer. Mm -hmm. It could be something about your background, right? Like, Hey, Greg, I had the same struggle, you know, going through school as you did. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, some commonality to warm up the discussion. Uh, you know, I just think it's, it's emails, whether it's an email, a call, it just needs to be thoughtful. Um, and being thoughtful means doing my research, what's in it for them. Uh, if they spend a half hour with me or, or 20 minutes with me, um, and then, uh, and then just make sure you warm it up by, by sort of knowing what, what's common between, between the two of you. Man. Hopefully that makes sense. No, nah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And, um, like, what did you, cause I, I also want to, um, one more question on that because some of them, some people may be thinking, okay. Because you mentioned force when you first started, did you have any like what were some of the, the first mistakes you made and how did you adjust with them? Because I know we're going to talk later in this podcast about pivoting. But early on, I know your first couple calls, were they rough? Like how they go and what did it eventually lead to? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the I tend to be a little bit verbose. We'll probably hear that on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so I can go on for a while. And I, my writing style is actually the same. And I, I tend to like the cold email. I think you can express yourself a lot better through uh, through written word rather than, you know, calling someone for the first time. And so I think I tended to be a little bit uh, long winded in emails. Um you know, and I think, uh, you know, failing to to really identify what's in it for, you know, what's in it for that person. And there are times when you just don't know, right? Yeah. You can be honest about that. It's like, look, Greg, I don't know what I can do for you, but, um, you know, I would love to be able to help you at some point. And I think there's some good faith there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think generally speaking, um, you know, probably being too long-winded. The other thing is people are busy, and so they mm-hmm. might not respond to your first email, um, one thing I learned over time was being professionally persistent. Um, you know, actually more recently, uh, I was calling on a, another company who could be a partner with us and I called on the CEO of this company, pretty big company, you know, a few hundred employees. Um, I called on the CEO for about 11 months. Uh, I sent him one email a month, uh, you know, thoughtful and professionally persistent. And he took my call and he told me the reason he took my call is because I was professionally persistent. Um, and so I think giving up too soon that just because somebody doesn't respond to your first email, that doesn't mean they're not interested. It may just mean that they saw your email when they were running into a meeting and just, you know, and just missed it. So, yeah, um, I love that. It's a big one. I think. All, like two things to add on that is a taking the ego out of it because once your ego's out of it, then you know you're not like oh man they ain't respond in a week for real man like who do they think they are but because that's immediately what we do we be like oh right. man they switched up or Ben what you mean dog like you ain't hit me back but it's like hold up hold up hold up you don't you don't know what's going on the guy may have, his family member may have died you you right. never know and honestly when you're not at the point of leverage too it's not like he see your name he just oh I gotta hit him back immediately like it's just but once you take your ego out of the thing and then I love what you said about finding that common ground because once you do research right i'm talking about deep research you looking at old mm-hmm. past youtube videos old blogs you don't even yep. do, it don't have to take too long you just like really if you want to get to me you just go to a, a old youtube video and you say hey man i remember episode 65 you made that comment you ain't have to listen to the whole episode you say that one <laughs> thing and again i'm like right. oh man that's what's up man what you mean what do you need like right so but yeah but if, if that's what you connect on you better you better go back and listen to that podcast yeah. so, so you understand the context when you actually meet face to face but no i agree with you and, and your point about not taking it taking it personally like there's no doubt there are going to be there are going to be people you reach out to that they just don't have that kind of personality mm-hmm. and so you know you can email them 25 times they're not going to respond like you you would love 
I mean, I'd love to get a quick no rather than email them 25 times, but they're going to be people that just don't respond. And so you can't rely on one person, right? And again, that's whether, whether you're looking for a job or whether you're looking for, you know, capital for investment in your company or whether you're looking for sales, it's all about knowing sort of how much volume you need to do in order to connect with the people that are going to be good connections because some people just aren't going to be, you know, people, companies, partners, whatever. They're just not going to be helpful for whatever reason or another, whether it's interest or whether it's fit or whether it's just bad timing. Yeah, I love that. And I love as we kind of begin to transition, I love the way that you, Anessia, you, you call for 11 months because I, I was listening to or I watched the, the, the documentary on Defiant Ones or Jimmy Iovine and Dr. Dre. And uh, Jimmy, it was a story where this is when Jimmy Iovine was already successful. He already produced um, some tracks with a couple of Beatles and uh, some major groups. And he saw an act, the Nine Inch Nails act. And he called the the actual the person or the manager of Nine Inch Nails for a whole year, every single day. Jimmy Iovine, he wasn't. This wasn't when he was on the come up. This was already when he had like like platinum tracks and already had a good career and a name for a whole year just to buy a contract, get somebody off the label. Like so, it takes sometimes it takes that kind of commitment. So that even that so hopefully that can check a lot of entrepreneurs' egos at the door when somebody of already successful has to make that type of commitment to buy something. Yeah, it's like yeah. not to get anything to buy to to get to, to buy something from someone. So um, it's crazy. But as we transition, um, I want I want you to talk to because I'm excited because I always want to be a fly on the wall. On I know you can't share too much on. The culture and why West Point is so revered, right? Um, but before we get to that, I right, two question one. Can you share us a little bit about your upbringing and how you even got to West Point? Because I mean, that's not naturally where people want to go. I mean, not yeah. want to go, but end up going. Yeah, yeah, no. Um, yeah, so I grew up in uh, in in southern New Jersey, which is just across the river from Philadelphia um in in new jersey and uh, it's actually why new jersey is called the garden state it's a fairly rural uh area it's where my dad grew up and you know it's sort of you know farms and uh, obviously you're not too far from philadelphia you kind of sit right between philadelphia new york city and washington Mm -hmm. dc so you're not far from the cities uh but i grew up one of five i've got an identical twin brother um and uh he and i were you know extremely active uh you know we were uh, athletes uh, three sport athletes in in high school and to be honest with you, all I remember about, you know, thinking about careers when I was in high school, I think I mentioned this already. I just knew I never wanted to work uh, at a desk. I remember my, <laughs> my, my brother and I would always say that, you know, w- when we grew up, we wanted to, you know, we kind of saw ourselves as construction company owners. You know, we wanted to be able to drive around in a truck, you know, look at a house that people are, that are building and then, you know, drive around, go to the other site and never go back to kind of sit in some office. So we always saw ourselves in some active you know, active sort of role. And, uh, I was fortunate though, to go to a high school in, um, in Southern New Jersey that, you know, my dad went to, my grandmother went to, uh, not a very diverse high school, but, um, you know, in a, in a community in New Jersey, New Jersey is known for having, you know, pretty good schools and, and this school, small school, I think my class was 180, uh, 180 people. Um, three of us uh, actually went to West Point together. Um, and, uh, I actually learned about West Point from my high school football coach. He, mm-hmm. I think he knew that my parents didn't have any money. Uh, he knew I was a, a pretty good student and I was also well-rounded, you know, as an athlete, had served on, um, you know, student government roles, things like that. And he just encouraged me to apply. 
And they're, you know, the, the school, uh, the school just happened to have a, a, a long history of sending kids to, uh, to the service academies, not just West Point, but the Naval Academy, Air Force. And uh, I went and visited uh, when I was a junior uh, with a, a guy that was a senior. I drove up with him and his family. Uh, he had already applied and gotten accepted. And I remember I got out of the car and I saw these, uh, you know, these young guys and, and gals walking around in uniform. I just immediately knew that's where I wanted to go. Mm-hmm. I, honestly, I, I, my family didn't have any history in the military. Um, you know, again, I knew my parents didn't have any money, so I had to figure out how do I get a scholarship. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so I, I uh, well, and that, interestingly, my twin brother started the application process. He decided he didn't want to go. I sort of picked up and and and, and my memory serves me that I completed the application. But obviously, <laughs> I, I must have started with a new application, um, and uh, you know, got accepted, and, and and the rest is history. So there were there were seven of us at West Point at the same time for my high school, which is pretty crazy uh, wow. for a school. Because admission uh, is like what what is the admission rate for West Point? Uh, I don't know what it is, but it's probably similar to to any Ivy League school. Yeah, it's um, I'm one guessing of the one schools. in ten that apply. Yeah. yeah. So uh, yeah, just just you know, very fortunate, and uh, you know, I, I I feel strongly that you know, I, and I tell people this all the time. I, you know, I feel like policies for you know minorities in in the United States, it's it's important. You know, you go back to things like affirmative action, and mm. uh, you know, I feel like I was the beneficiary of of being given a chance, even though it's probably a little bit less than uh, what I would have had to been if I weren't a minority, um, you know, to be uh, to be admitted, and you know, I feel like I have a strong responsibility to, to to give back and make sure that other people have those opportunities because of that. Whether that's through supporting policies that allow that, or whether it's just reaching back and helping other young, um, you know, young minorities that uh, that are trying to do the same thing. So, but you know, ended up doing really well. I went with two other guys that were not minorities and actually academically did better than both of those, despite the fact they did better than me in, in high school. So yeah. just need a chance, you know, people need a chance to, to, to excel. So, um, but, uh, with that, with that, with that, if you could, uh, and at your time at West point, if you could tell three things that changed about you or that you, that you evolved in three things, three key takeaways from your time, because we don't have a time to go through the whole experience. But, um, I would just, I just want to hear it because what I hear about leadership, discipline, all that stuff, I mean, wow. And you're the first person I really had the opportunity to kind of build with that has graduated from, um, that institution, man. So if you can kind of just share, what's the secret sauce there, man? And what did you get from it? Yeah, you know, I think the secret sauce of the institution in general is 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 just the notion of character. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people of character, and you know, I, I think most people that go come from backgrounds where that's probably something that's been a part of your DNA. Otherwise, you probably wouldn't want to serve. But they just pound that into you. Um, I think the, you know, what I walked away from from West Point with. Um, I think number one would just be work ethic. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, you don't graduate from West Point without being, without figuring out how to study. Uh, you know, I would not call myself, uh, a, 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 a studious, uh, individual in high school. You know, I was playing sports. I wasn't that interested in class. I did well, but, um, you know, I didn't know how to study and they, forced me to figure out how to study, mm-hmm. um, just because you had to, to get through. Um, and, uh, I, I think I, that also take away number two teamwork. Uh, they have a saying at West point, uh, they say, uh, and they tell you this right from the beginning, cooperate and graduate. Uh, the only way that you're going to graduate from, from, uh, West point is to, is to actually work together with your peers, whether that be studying, uh, in study groups, you know, helping, you know, people helping you, you helping other people with different classes, 
whether that be you know just waking up on time to get to morning formation and make make it to breakfast so you don't get in trouble, uh, whether it be you know getting projects done. It was all about teamwork, and so I took that away. Um, figuring out how to, you know, how to relate to other people that don't share the same background as you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my, my roommates, you know, my first roommates, one was, uh, one was from Arkansas. I'm from New Jersey. You know, we didn't have much in common whatsoever, but we, we figured out how to work together and, um, you know, is still a good friend today. And another one, you know, all, actually also from New Jersey, but completely different background. So you figure out how to work together with people you never met. I actually think the the military does a great job you know, we talk about race relations and, and uh, people uh, kind of getting along, all the stuff that's going on right now in Charlottesville, Virginia, and everywhere else. Uh, I think the military has served for a long time as, 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 as a six, and they didn't always, but, um, you know, successfully sort of integrating people from different backgrounds and just forcing you to, 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 to relate to one another. So, mm-hmm. uh, so teamwork was, was really critical. Um, and then, yeah, obviously leadership. And I, I think what you learn about at West Point, uh, you know, with regards to leadership, it, you know, it's always lead by example. And, uh, you know, the one thing you would hear all the time is you don't ask other people to do things that you wouldn't or couldn't do, uh, do yourself. Mm-hmm. And so when I fast forward to now, you know, building a startup, um, you know, building companies where, um, you know, I don't have any, I don't have any authority, right? Like nobody's, I don't, I don't wear bars on my, on my shirt. Or I don't have a, I'm not a colonel. I don't have any authority. I can only influence people and lead people to the extent they can look at me and see, A, Ben has done that. B, Ben is willing to do it if I don't do it. Uh, and, and C, Ben can actually train me to do that and, and, and give me the confidence to do it on my own. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think leadership is just, you know, it, it, that's what the place is known for. I'm a beneficiary of it. And frankly, it's the best decision I ever made in my life was to go to West Point. So I encourage anyone out there that has kids <laughs> think about college to, uh, you know, to take a look, even if you don't have a background in the military. Um, it is, uh, it's an incredible place. It's an incredible institution. So love that, man. What was the most challenging part, uh, there? Uh, you know, it, academics were, you know, really tough. Um, no doubt about it. I think probably tougher than, than most other uh, colleges only because there's, you know, there, you don't get any flexibility. Um, it, you know, you're forced and you're forced to take, uh, you know, lots of math and science and, you know, it's very heavy STEM. Um, but, uh, I, I don't think that was the hardest part. I, I think the hardest part was just, th- you had to be well-rounded. So you had to be able to get through the academics. You had to be able to get through chemistry and physics and calculus and you know all the hardest uh, you know thermodynamics. You had to be able to get through all the academics while also having to play a sport. So if you didn't play a varsity sport, you had to play you know intramural sport. I played the, uh, lightweight football, like I had said before. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you also had military requirements. You know you had to be up. You had to shine your shoes. You had to you know you had to you had to look you had to look right. You had to look presentable. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just, there was always constant, there was always something you were responsible for and we didn't have a whole lot of time to just sit around. And so it was, you know, it was, it was just a lot. They throw a lot at, uh, they threw a lot at us. And so I think when you go to West Point, you, you finish up, you, you, I don't ever feel like I'm in an environment where I can't keep up or figure things out because I've been in that environment of, you know, just being stressed and constantly having pressure and you no longer really feel that pressure. And frankly, you sort of thrive in that you're looking for, um, you know, to kind of always be, uh, you know, a little bit overloaded because you figure out how to manage your time, uh, and, and manage the, 
you know, manage what most people would be stressed under. That doesn't mean there's no stress there. <laughs> Obviously mm-hmm. is, but uh, you learn how to cope with that and, 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 and live with it. So. so what are some strategies that you use now? Because that's great because, I mean, you, I can only imagine having to be responsible not only for just because it ain't like in other schools where you just, as long as you wake up and get to class and you're good, you can have your, you, you can have flip-flops, you can be looking all, all sorts of ways, but, I mean, how for, and this is specific for our audience how do you now balance your time and to stay stay organized or whatnot like what's your what's your go-to strategy on how to, to to deal with the responsibilities of a startup all these things and you have a wife and three kids too so it's not like <laughs> it's just you man so how like i know that's kind of skipping over a lot of stuff but uh how do you do that yeah, no, I'll tell you, uh, I'll tell you, Greg, I am probably more challenged now um, than I have, have ever been, uh, you know, whether it's the wife and three kids or, or whether it's, you know, I'm involved in running two businesses um, and, and, you know, this having a startup, you know, technology business um, that also is a service and you're trying to figure out what's your best path to market and, um, you know, you've got lots of options and, you know, focus becomes incredibly important. Um, and I can't say that I've always gotten it right. Um, and in fact, I think really in the last six months or so, I've just had to force myself to figure out how do I focus on the right things, uh, particularly, particularly within the business. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, how do I focus on, how do I focus on the right things? Um, and I can talk a little bit about that, but, um, uh, you had said, what's, what's a strategy that, that I use? I actually, um, uh, I had had three or four entrepreneurs tell me about a book called Traction uh, mm. by Gino Wickman. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of it or or, never, or, never or uh, heard of it, man. Listen to it. Yeah, it's a it's a, it's a, it's a great book, and and it, they actually uh, there's a it, it's the book is about a, a system called the Entrepreneur uh, Entrepreneurial Operating System EOS, and it actually there's a consulting business around it. I mean, guys are making a lot of money helping businesses implement this system, but you essentially you you put your entire business on two pages. Um, you know, forget about this long business plan. Forget about this you know long drawn out strategy. What do I need to accomplish? What do I want to accomplish in the next ten years? And then kind of breaking that you know backing that all the way up to what do I need to accomplish in the next year? And then what do I need to accomplish in the next ninety days in order to in order to get to the next step? I, I had a boss one one time that called you know, similar to he would call it. Uh, you just have to Swiss cheese the problem. You know, take little bite. You know, little holes in the piece of cheese. Mm-hmm. Um, and this the book is incredibly insightful in, in in trying to break your business into manageable sort of manageable chunks. And you know, I have to force myself. I mean, it really comes down to how do you simplify everything that you're doing? Stop overthinking. You know, stop trying to do too much. Stop trying to be too many things to too many different to too many people, um, and 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 simplify and focus on what are the core things that you need to do. And I, when I first set up, uh, I, I took this. Uh, actually, forget what it's called. But it's essentially a two-page business plan. Mm-hmm. I actually in front of me. I could I, I could I could share it with you. Okay. Um, but I remember when I when I when I filled this out, and you know, when you're able to focus, and all the things that you're doing that don't matter just like kind of fall away from you. It just, you know, you, you, all of the stress that you had is you, you realize you were trying to do so many things that just didn't matter, you know, um, you, know, you just kind of let those things go. Like who, who are the people I need to sell my product to? What are the actual changes I need to make to my product today in the next 90 days to win? I don't need to think about my roadmap for my technology <laughs> 12 months from now. Who cares? Uh-huh. I need, what do I need today? Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, it's all about simplification and, 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 and focus and not, not overthinking, Man. um, yeah. I love that. And that, that book is Traction by Gina Whitman. 
Wickman, W-W-I-C-K-M-A-N. Cool. That 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 uh, link will be in the show notes. Show notes. So yeah, that'll be a good read for any entrepreneur. So. Yep. 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 And what? So after West Point, did you immediately go to Goldman? Did you go to business school? Like, what was after that? No, no. I, I honestly didn't have know much about what I wanted to do. So I spoke with a lot of uh, grads. I ended up um, going to work for a small manufacturing firm uh, in sort of an operator role, uh, managing a team of uh, fourteen or fifteen guys on a plant floor. Um, and, uh, did that for about six months mm-hmm. and, uh, realized all I did all day was look at the clock cause I couldn't wait to leave. I, mm-hmm. I am not a plant floor operational kind of guy. <laughs> I enjoyed the leadership, but just wasn't, you know, just such a slow pace. I was kind of took a, a, a manufacturing is for a certain, a, a very specific type of person that wasn't me. Um, and, uh, I lucked out actually, the company was struggling. So they let me go after six months anyway, and they went out of business eventually. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, went on from, from that role and, uh, landed in a sales job, pharmaceutical sales, working for Eli Lilly. Good just God. Like, so you go from manufacturing to a pharmaceutical sales job, <laughs> man. What? <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. It was, uh, at, that sales job was actually where I learned, I mean, I learned sales and I learned how critical sales was to a business. I mean, I was in the field all day, every day for about two years. And I realized that sales had nothing to do with being suave or being smooth. It was all about execution. Mm. It was all about knowing what your message was, knowing who your top customers were or top potential customers were and going and delivering the message over and over and over again and building a relationship and, uh, you know, performed really well. And, uh, you know, again, realized I didn't want to be in sales full time, but sales was a great skill um, and decided to, uh, to to move on. They were actually downsizing the division I was in and had the opportunity to to take a severance package. Um, and so I did that. Um, and, you know, still I was still stuck in that, uh, you know, wasn't sure what I wanted to do, thought I wanted to be in the army, uh, ended up going to do some healthcare consulting. Um, again, you know, every job I've had at this point, this is my third job in, you know, call it four years or three years, I think, mm-hmm. um, uh, West Point grad who had, uh, had a small healthcare consulting business, uh, hired me, uh, to be, you know, healthcare consultant. We were doing healthcare IT projects, uh, in, in Philadelphia, um, did that for a little while. And then ultimately was asked by another West Point grad, uh, I was playing golf with him one day and he said, Hey Ben, you ought to apply for this job. It was with, at the time it was called Harrah's Entertainment, um, which was acquired by Caesars, mm-hmm. uh, the gaming company. Um, and I went and took a job as uh, director of customer service for one of their properties in Atlantic City, um, wow. which is not far from where I grew up. And so did that for, for two years. It was sort of an internal consulting role where I interacted with the you know, head of hotel, head of security, uh, you know, head of the gaming operations like slots and table games. And it was really, uh, it was all about process and culture. Um, they, they were just a very service minded organization. Um, you know, if I could go back, I probably wouldn't have taken that job because the gaming industry wasn't for me. I probably knew I never wanted to be in that industry. It just Mm -hmm. didn't fit sort of my, my personal values. Uh, but I learned a tremendous amount, um, in, in that job. I was, you know, working with the executives at this, at the property level, working for the general manager, you know, a 3000 person, uh, uh, hotel. Mm -hmm. Um, so I learned a lot and ultimately kind of, you know, had, had my sights on business school, uh, because I knew it would allow me to sort of take a step back, assess kind of where at, where am I in my career, and you know I'd met a couple other West Point grads who went to business school, and uh, applied. Um, I applied through the Consortium for Graduate Study and Management. I'm not sure if you heard yep. of it, but yep, you yep. have, yeah, CBSM. Definitely. Yeah, full uh, ride, boy, the full tuition. Yeah. yeah, so I got a full ride to uh, 
to Darden. Again, I sort of luck out. Uh, you know, there are programs out there for uh, for folks like us, and should take advantage of them. Um, and Darden was, you know, just an incredible experience. You know, I, I applied to to, to Michigan. Uh, Dartmouth and 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 Darden and uh, got waitlisted at the other two actually mm-hmm. um, and uh, got into Darden and, and I'm actually glad that I went to Darden it was my second choice but it was actually a lot like West Point you know it was very structured uh, the, you know a lot of people sort of look at Darden as being um, a little bit military actually it's uh, the culture there is you, know, you go to business school and you work hard it's not it's not a whole lot of fun and games and it fit my personality that's I, I in, in, in school, I operated well with structure around me. Um, mm-hmm. and so I liked Darden from that perspective. Um, but still didn't, you know, didn't really know what I wanted to do. Uh, and I remember when, uh, I just remember going to the Goldman Sachs presentation and it was on investment banking and wealth management. And uh, I just met, you know, met some guys in, uh, in wealth management and I was like, man, that's sales. I've done that before. And, uh, you know, always enjoyed the always, always enjoyed the financial world, but didn't want to be an investment banker. You know, Mm -hmm. I didn't want to put in, you know, 18 hour days and live in New York and, uh, and not really enjoy my life. (laughs) Yeah. Um, you know, wealth management made, made a lot of sense. I figured I'd meet a lot of people that, uh, were successful and I could see what careers they had and, um, ended up, uh, ended up going there for an internship. I went back full time, uh, and spent about three years at, uh, at Goldman Sachs and, um, tr- tremendous, uh, tremendous experience working with a lot of really, really smart people. Um, but, uh, that's, that's, that's sort of my career path before becoming an entrepreneur. I actually met my business partner now, uh, at Goldman Sachs and sort of the rest is history. He, he left a little bit before I did and we had complimentary skill set, skill set. So I left to join him. So, man, that's, um, that's, that's great. And, uh, there's a couple of things as far as that, as we go into your, your, we, as we really start to break down kind of what you do today and your, your multiple businesses before we get there, I'll be remiss, uh, not to ask at least one question about, uh, Darden and, um, Goldman and for, mm-hmm. for, for the, for as far as business school, Outside of, would you say that you learn more from the actual going to classes or more so from the networking experience in business school? Oh, man. Um, <clears throat> I have to be careful. I don't think there are people that are listening to this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Actually, the associate, uh, yeah, be careful. Like, I, I, when I, I made a, a vlog about YouTube about getting denied from business school, one of the uh, admins from Darden reached out and said, if you want to apply, whatever. So, <laughs> <laughs> no, Darden was an awesome experience. I, you know, I'll tell you, and I don't think anybody there would disagree with this. There's no doubt that sort of the network that, that you create there, the people that you meet, um, are, uh, in my mind, the most valuable part of the experience. Um, you know, learning by interacting with them, uh, having the connection when you leave. Uh, I mean, everyone that goes there is smart, and everyone that goes there is, you know, already, you know, had some accomplishments in life. Um, you're just not in class. You don't focus that much time on a particular topic to learn so much that you could look back at that learning and that be the, that be the key to, uh, you know, to success after business school. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, I distinctly remember some of the case, the cases that we did at Darden, you know, in particular, like sort of the leadership and ethics cases. I don't, I don't think I remember a single accounting case, but, yeah. <laughs> but I, I remember a lot of cases, but hands down, you know, I just actually went to a wedding in, in Charlottesville a few weeks ago uh, and reconnected with you know fifteen or so of my of my classmates and you know, sort of a similar West Point reunion. You you see people and you feel like you you know you just saw them last week. And and, and Darden was a, a key 
absolute key to me starting my second business. Uh, three of my co-founders of five of us uh, that I, that I brought in um, were all also Darden grads. So wow, that's 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 also why I say that. Yeah, that's great. That's great. And then last question before we get into the fun, the juicy part at Goldman Sachs, and there's a man that's like one of the the the. The pentamount, the pentamounts. I, I just created a word. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I just created a pentamount. Podcast, man. You create whatever you want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's one of like the big dogs, and of all the big dogs, man. So if we had to boil it down to one, one word to describe that whole experience and what you got out of it, what would it be, and why did you choose that word? Uh, the word is definitely intense. Mm. Goldman is a, is an intense place that hires intense people, um, and intense in lots of different ways. I mean, they, they, everyone you interact with, you know, not not a hundred one hundred percent, but most people are intensely Type A. Um, most people are intensely smart. Most people are intensely driven. It's just intense. And I remember actually during the internship, it was a little bit overwhelming. Um, you know how intense people are, and I think you know a, a lot of that is is wall street, right? Wall street is just intense. Like that's just, mm. it's that culture. But I feel like Goldman in a lot of ways is, uh, is the, is sort of at the pinnacle of that intensity. Um, but you know, I think it's that it's intense, intensely focused. Um, it's just that kind of, it's just that kind of, uh, it's that kind of place. Um, and you know, I, I, I learned a ton from that intensity, uh, I think it's partially that intensity that allowed me to to leave it. Um, you know, I think, and again, whether it's Wall Street uh, in general or Goldman, you know, those places sort of require an intensity about sort of your career and your commitment to those organizations um, that, you know, frankly, I just wasn't willing to give. Um, you know, I was there for three years. Uh, I had my my oldest daughter, Faith, in March of 2012. And it was in April of 2012, a month later that I put in my, uh, my, my, uh, two weeks notice. And, um, you know, I knew, I knew that I wanted to go be an entrepreneur, but it, I, my timetable sped up by, I think about six months mm-hmm. just because I wasn't, you know, my daughter was waking up at, at, uh, you know, when I was gone for work and I was getting home and she was back in bed and I didn't have that same level of intensity for my, my career that I was willing to, to, to give up my flexibility to, to raise my, uh, my, my firstborn. So, um, but, uh, but yeah, again, wouldn't be where I am today if I didn't have Goldman. Um, you know, my, uh, again, my, one of my co-founders in the business, uh, one of our investors in the business, um, you know, and, and a lot of what I learned along the way about being an entrepreneur and, and how to go about getting started came from, came directly from Goldman Sachs. Love uh, that. So, uh, it was, it was, it was all worth it. It was all worth it. And I know not to belabor the point, but one thing I've noticed in, in majority of all your connections and all the things you have done is that it revolves around community. Your 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 West Point community led to the Darda community, led to the Goldman community, and now you, these people serve as co-founders, probably have helped with different stuff in your business and whatnot. But I want to have a question because it seems that, and it's not by luck or chance that you've always been in some some good environments. Um, I want to see, and, and you can pass on this question if you if you want, for the person out there that maybe is not growing up in the best, not growing up, not for the adults out there that's not in the best environment now. They're listening to this podcast and like, man, it sounds dope, but shoot, I don't got the smartest people um, that some may say in the room with me. I'm not in that environment, that culture. How can I? How can I change what I'm doing? How can I do that? Like, what, what would you tell that person? Yeah, no, it's that. That is a. It's a great question. And, 
you know, ultimately, Greg, I don't know that a West Point community is all that different from, you know, a Howard community Mm -hmm. or a Rowan University community or, you know, a Penn State community. And I don't know that Darden community would be that different from other NBA communities. I don't know that Goldman Sachs would be that different from, you know, some other, um, you know, some other employer, right? It's a, sure, the brand, there's a brand name there, but there are people that have gone to whatever your your educational institution is that are successful that you would connect with that that you know you can start a business with and be successful with and so i i don't think i'd take away from you know from what i've done and say that you need to be at these places that are sort of recognized in order to do what i've done and frankly i think in a lot of ways you you're more likely to be successful as an entrepreneur by having less opportunity of being at like those kind of branded places because you know when you, when you go to when you go to Darden I can go you know people can go work at McKinsey or Goldman Sachs or all these places and frankly you know most of my most of my classmates that went to Darden are not entrepreneurs you know they're working for big consulting firms and big investment banks and so it was sort of my decision to part with to take from those places and you know be a part of them when I was there but sort of be willing to sort of leave that behind because being an entrepreneur has nothing to do with any of that. Sure, it helped me build a relationship, but and I didn't learn anything. I, I didn't nothing at. I don't think there's much at Darden or Goldman or anywhere else that could prepare me to be an entrepreneur because you know what I use as an entrepreneur? I use LinkedIn to find people from all over the place that I can connect with. I use Google to figure out how do I create a landing page? How do I use an automated email uh, service? And so I think relationships are critical. I just don't know that they need to be relationships with people that, you know, quote, quote, unquote, um, you know, have been, you know, successful. Uh, well, success, they do need to be successful, but they don't have to have been West Point grads or, or, or Darden grads or Goldman Sachs alum. Um, so I think you're right. I think it is about community. You just need to make the community, make the most of the community that you're a part of. I've been fortunate that my community, um, you know, it does lend itself to, to uh, you know, it's, it's, it's got a lot of people that are successful, but ultimately it's been a handful of the people from each of those communities that I've been able to, you know, build deep relationships with that have led to, uh, you know, led to, you know, sort of down the path that, that, that I've gone down. So, um, you know, my, <clears throat> my twin brother is actually a good example. We're identical. We're exact in every way, except I'm more laid back. He's annoying uh, and <laughs> talks a lot more. <laughs> um, but, you know, he's been, uh, in a different world, he's the executive director for a nonprofit um, for a, a Christian pastor, but been equally as successful as me. Does did not work at Goldman, did not go to West Point, and uh, did not go to Darden. Didn't even go to business school. So, uh, but similar, you know, s- similar success based on making the most of the communities that communities that he's been involved in. So. Yeah, I love that answer. Just to make the most of your community, whatever it is, and. Don't don't necessarily always look at the the other pasture when you they're looking around. You have you have some resources right there. So um, I love that. So let's jump into it. Right. So you leave Goldman and now you're on the path of being an entrepreneur. You don't have any uh, reoccurring uh, income streams coming in and you have a family now. You have a wife, you have a kid. And now you're, you have to make money and, and push forward. What do you do? What was the transition like? And what was the first company you founded? Yeah, so I <clears throat> really entrepreneur twice, I guess. So I left Goldman Sachs, and when I left there, I was going into a business that already existed uh, with my partner. Uh, his name is Jeff Jones uh, at Cypress Financial Planning, 
Um, when I was at Goldman, I would, you know, there were people that didn't have enough money to work with, uh, or nearly enough money to work with Goldman Sachs, uh, but they needed help. And so I would refer them, whether they were friends, acquaintances, um, you know, people that I'd met along the way that needed some personal financial help, uh, be it investing, retirement planning, you know, personal planning around building a business. I'd refer them to Jeff. And uh, what I realized was he would win their business every time. And he would keep them as a customer. This just happened. He left right before I started back at, full, at Goldman full time. I met him when I was an intern. And uh, we realized pretty quickly that we had sort of a, <clears throat> a winning combination. Mm-hmm. You know, he was, uh, he's very much a numbers guy. Uh, you know, went to Duke undergrad, mechanical engineer. Oh, yeah. Um, you you got to find your engineer, <laughs> man. <laughs> so he was extremely capable at building process and systems and, and, and frankly, just personal finance. He's a certified financial planner. And so uh, he said one day, he said, hey, Ben, would, had, would you ever think about joining me? And uh, I said, yeah, we grew, we both grew up in, you know, similar sort of similar values, right? Like uh, we, we grew up in Southern New Jersey. We both valued family. We both wanted to be around for our kids. And so that was, you know, probably what has kept us together as business partners. You know, we don't, um, I, I didn't have, uh, it wasn't all about money. It was, it was really a lot about just wanting the control to, 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 to be able to build, build our, fa- you know, build our families. Mm-hmm. And so I uh, joined him. You're right. I had no income. Um, you know, I, I left Goldman Sachs, uh, you know, I'd saved well. I knew that, uh, I wanted to leave, um, and made sure that, uh, that I could, you know, live at least a year without, without any income and, uh, didn't want to leave with absolutely nothing. And so I did a little bit of consulting on the side, um, you know, just to be able to pay my mortgage each month, each month. And then, about six months in, I realized the switching cost of doing both of these things is is too high, and so I said I have to just commit to building this business. And so I stopped doing the consulting, and you know, financial planning and investing is you know it's kind of hand to hand combat. It's just finding customers one at a time, and uh, you know, it took six months, and then at the six month part, at the six month point, um, you know, started bringing in some 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 customers, and luckily in that business, every time you bring in a customer, you get a raise, mm-hmm. and so um, you know, it took a little longer than I thought it would, but uh, you know, we built a nice successful practice. We've got. Uh, we brought on two other advisors. My plan for growing that business was uh, to scale was to bring on other advisors that were uh, as capable or more capable than me. Uh, so we brought on two other advisors. Uh, we manage about almost a, a, about ninety million dollars for about uh, two hundred families or so. Wow. You know, all like kind of mass affluent customers. Um, you know, help them think about retirement planning. Um, you know, my partner Jeff started his career at Lockheed Martin, so he went back and did seminars there. I did a lot of just pure networking and, and um, uh, yeah, a lot of my a lot of my business would come from acquaintances, people that knew me and knew I was smart and knew someone that needed some help. So, uh, but you know, just slowly build up the business. Uh, you know, came with sacrifice uh, for sure. Um, you know, had, at some point I had to figure out how do I afford to pay for healthcare as an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, you know, funny enough, I was just getting to the point after a few years that. Um, you know, I'm able to, you know, pay my bills and stop, stop going through, uh, all of my savings. And I had this idea for the second business, which is my financial answers. Um, you know, at the, the problem with financial planning and investment, uh, management or wealth management, if you will, is sort of the, the two of those together is that it's only available for relatively wealthy people. Mm-hmm. You know, at Goldman Sachs, we work with clients with $10 million or more. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if you look at like Merrill Lynch or Morgan Stanley firms like that, they generally help people, 
that are, you know, lower high net worth, a few million dollars down to, you know, call it $500,000. And, uh, and that's kind of, that's where Cyprus is. My, my first business is kind of in that space so on the lower end of that. Um, but, uh, you know, people like my parents, my dad worked for the state for 30 years as a, as a state worker. My mom was a, uh, an executive assistant at our church after, you know, leaving her job as a, as a teacher to, mm-hmm. to raise kids. Yeah. And, you know, my parents who were like everyday Americans, uh, who, you know, actually this year are finally retiring. They didn't have anywhere to turn to get personal financial help. I mean, I helped them. I'm a good son, but people like them didn't have anywhere to turn. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they, 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 they're kind of just guessing at, you know, when can I retire and when should I take social security and when should I take Medicare? And, you know, and, and, and by the way, as they were sort of coming through life, definitely never had anybody to ask when they were in their thirties or forties, what decisions should they be making? Mm -hmm. And so, um, my partner, Jeff, one of the things that he had done at Cyprus was he built our personal financial planning software that we use still today for those 200 families that we work with. Um, you know, it's, it's the basis for our relationship. When we first meet with a client, we sit down, we do an inventory of their entire balance sheet. What are your assets? What are your liabilities? We look at their cash flow. You know, how much is your income? How much are you spending? And then we look at all the other issues in their life. How many kids do you have? Um, you know, what would you, where would you like to retire? Do you want to keep your house that you live in now? Um, you know, would you like to downsize? Um, you know, what benefits do you have available? What's your 401k match? Do you have a, do you have a health savings account? Is there a match on that? And so we take all that in mm-hmm. and my partner, Jeff built the software that allowed us to sort of ingest all that data and quantify the trade-offs between all those different decisions that people have to make. But again, remember our business model at Cyprus is that we can help people that have enough investments. We're no different than Goldman in this way. Mm-hmm. If, if people have enough investment dollars, then it fits our business model because we can manage their investments and make enough money to provide a holistic relationship. But when somebody doesn't have any investment dollars, when you don't have, you know, in Cyprus's case, you know, we go down to, you know, $150,000 or so. But if you don't have that, it's difficult for us to use that business model mm. to serve one. If not, if not impossible, right? We have yeah. to take so many clients. <laughs> and so, um, interestingly enough though, Jeff had built this software and I looked at it and I said, man, why can't we use the same process, the same system create a web-based product that allows us to sort of shift some of the heavy lifting to the consumer um, so that we can serve that consumer more uh, more efficiently and more cost-effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I had the idea that we could spin that software out um, and uh, and start a new company. And, you know, so we did it. I spent, I spent uh, you know, a year sort of moonlighting, if you will, uh, building one business, thinking about the other, uh, and finally pulled together a group of five people that sort of had both the skill sets uh, as well as the as the capital to begin building that company. And uh, that was almost three years ago now. Um, or actually, uh, last month it was three years ago. Wow. Um, and, uh, you know, so it's kind of like the same business as Cyprus. Instead of being a, a percentage of your assets, we, we have a subscription-based service. And so people can hire us. It doesn't matter if you're 35 and, you, you, you know, you've got a couple of kids and, life is starting to get complex and you want to think about, am I making the right decisions? Or you can be 25 and just want to make sure I'm making the most of the resources I have today, or you can be 55. doesn't matter. We've created a subscription based model to, uh, to, to, to interact with people. It's not, it's not TurboTax, right? It's not a do it yourself service. Although you are using the technology to provide the information we need. You're also interacting with someone on our team who is a legitimate, uh, certified financial planner who is an expert, um, in helping people make decisions around all of these issues that we're talking about, uh, any personal financial issue you can think about. Um, and so that's what we're, 
that's what we're building today. I think that's that's huge, and I'm, I want to talk specifically to to what that looks like for um, people that are looking to do that service. But before we get into that, I know that you that uh that that in our in our pitch and when we talked beforehand. It, you raised a quite a lot of uh, quite a lot of money to 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 launch the second business. You said seven hundred fifty thousand. Yeah, about I think it was seven twenty actually to be uh, to be specific. Is the amount of the amount of capital that we've put into the business? Uh, I think two hundred and fifty thousand of that or so was from the five co-founders. Some more than others. <laughs> you know, some people were putting in more sweat equity. Others were putting in more uh, more capital and less sweat equity. But about two hundred fifty thousand from the original five co-founders and then uh, the rest from uh, mainly one investor, but uh, a, a, a few investors that, you know, not, not venture capital, uh, not even legitimate sort of angel networks. If there is such a, uh, if there is such a thing, but just high net worth, high net worth people that had the resources and sort of saw our vision uh, and invested in the, in the company. So, yes. Yeah. So to break that down real quick on the, the best, I know there's, everybody has different best practice and it's all based on context and situation, but how are you able to, to get that kind of confidence? Because I know for some people in this world, C rounds of 750 or, and this wasn't even a C round, but raising anywhere from five to $3.2 million, it's like, okay, it's normal. But there is another subside. Like, it's like kind of like the other West more. Like, people like myself and others, we're the other West more. Well, that's like, that's not normal. Like, I mean, to be able to, um, raise that amount of money. I mean, there's people outside, even myself, man. If I tried to raise 5,000, I mean, outside with my normal network, I could probably extend myself and, and get some, some big funding if I need it. But there's a lot of people out there like, yo, that'd be dope if I could really take it to that next level and do that. So for somebody out there that has an idea, uh, that has actually shown some, 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 some sort of results, how would, how would you suggest that they go about, um, actually raising some real capital? Yeah. Well, I think before I get into how to do it, I would, I would first caution people about raising capital. I think, yeah, you, know, you, you see this culture where people read, you know, um, you know, crunch base and all these different, yep. you can read articles about raising capital and you can sort of get it twisted and think that success is if I can raise money, then I'm successful. And I think the reality is, is that any money you raise, frankly, raises the bar for what you need to do to be successful. And so I would, t- I would tell anyone to do as much as you possibly can before you go out and raise money from anyone, because it's just going to increase your personal risk as a founder of a business to, to take money from, from, from outside investors. So that's, uh, that, to me, that's number one. Uh, raising money is a means to an end. It's not the goal. Um, but, you know, in, in terms of raising money, you know, we, I, I never set out to go raise, um, you know, institutional venture capital. We've had some conversations with some firms. Um, but ultimately, you know, institutional venture capital is looking for people that have ideas that are going to build, you know, billion dollar businesses and are different enough that you, know, you can completely dominate an industry. Mm-hmm. And while I think what we're doing, you know, we could potentially do something like that. Um, you know, the minute you take institutional money, like you're now at odds. Like my, my, I don't come from, you know, I don't come from a wealthy background. In fact, I come from a, what I would call lower middle class, if not, uh, if not, uh, you know, poor, um, you know, my, my, my upbringing. And so, when you take money from an institutional institutional investor, their goal is to take your company and do whatever it takes to make a make it a billion dollar company, mm-hmm. right? They they only get so many shots. Your goal as a founder, for most people, 
is to build a successful company. And so if the decision comes, uh, you know, if it comes time to, to sell your company, you could sell your company for, you know, call it $20 million and do well as a founder, but you've got an institutional venture capitalist investing in your business. They're then going to say, well, if we have a, you know, a 10% chance of turning this into a $500 million company mm-hmm. or a 100% chance of selling it today for $20 million or $10 million, whatever the number is, they're going to say, hey, let, let's take the 10% chance of turning this yeah. into, a, <laughs> into a $500 million company. And you're looking at it like, what? <laughs> you're interested in that And so we never really looked at that. And uh, there, were, there were a few reasons to go into it that I, I won't go into. But that's, that's a part of it, just the math. Um, I don't know if our, if our business was, uh, was, was fundable at that level. Um, but, uh, you know, for me, it came down to really just naturally seeking out people that had an interest in our business and just happened to have the resources to, uh, you know, to invest again, you know, this is where I was fortunate. You know, one of our investors is, uh, is, uh, a colleague, he was a colleague of mine at Goldman Sachs that had been there for 20 years. Uh, he understood the wealth management business. Um, he, you know, liked me as an individual. He sort of believed in my vision. I talked to him enough about it that he, he could see, uh, you know, what was the roadmap for success. And so, you know, he took a risk, uh, to invest in the business. And I, I think that most entrepreneurs, um, you know, the first dollar that you raise for a lot of people, you know, it's going to be family and friend money. I didn't have that, right. I didn't have family and friends that had that kind of money. Um, you know, I guess they were kind of friends, colleagues, but, um, but ultimately you just have to seek out people that first like the idea uh, and second might have the, 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 uh, the resources to, uh, uh, to invest in it. So I, I think if you're, there's a good, there's a saying that goes, if you ask for advice, people will give you money. If you ask for money, you'll get advice. Yeah. I, so I, never, I, I never sought out to ask for money. Um, and I don't think that's a, a successful strategy unless you've got a whole lot of revenue and a growing business. If you have that, you can ask for all the money in the world. And you can ask for great terms, but if you, if it's an idea, uh, or a concept uh, that that might even be a little bit proven. What you really need to do, do is go out and ask for a lot of advice, and and people that that love your business and and want to give you advice will also say, "Hey, would you be interested in in, in taking some of my capital?" I think that's how it. That's sort of the dirty little secret. Um, you know, you can put all the pitch decks pitch decks together in the world. Um, you know, I don't know that you're going to raise a lot of money just going out and asking for money. Does that make sense? I hope yeah. it does. I think <laughs> I, I think it's spot on. I think you hit. I laugh because there's been so many situations in my life where I'm like, when I when I needed money, I asked for, I didn't get it. But when I needed advice, people were like, "Oh, let's, okay, how much you need?" I'm like, "Bro, what you mean, <laughs> yeah. bro? Like I was just borderline, couldn't do anything, and all you had was, well, you should do this, you should do that." And now when stuff is rolling, it's like, so what do you, I'm like, it doesn't make any sense, but I think it, it, it does make sense because, um, just thinking, thinking about that in, in its totality, I think it's built on kind of just like you said, developing those relationships. But I think there's something critical that, and I want you to speak on, there's actually three things. And, uh, before we get into your packages, and I think you can be able to add a lot of tremendous value on this. And, um, the first thing I want to talk about is, uh, sales, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I know that. In your, you had sales experience and actual sales role. And now with your company, the biggest thing is sales. And I think a lot of times, even myself, sometimes I get so passionate about podcasting, about speaking about all the stuff I'm doing and the impact that I forget sales. And now, I mean, now I'm working, I'm doing a lot better job, but for entrepreneurs out there and just for, and it's not even this, this message goes for people outside of entrepreneurship, just sales about executing. So my people that are out there that are, that are, that are working, they just need to work on executing. What is your, 
how, how have you been able to, and I know you still have a long way to go and you have big adventures, but you've, you've been successful thus far. Like what, what is, what is in your secret sauce, um, of, of sales? Yeah. Well, I think the longer you, you know, are in sales, business development, marketing, the, the more you realize that the only way you're ever going to sell anything is to actually solve someone's problem. And so it really comes down to focusing on what is the problem I'm solving and how do I, how do I show someone that this is, you know, this is, this is a problem that, uh, that I can help them with. And, um, you know, for, for us, I mean, our, our business has evolved a little bit. I mean, Cypress, uh, the, you know, financial planning and investment business, that, that problem is pretty easy. It's people come to us when they're, you know, they don't have the time, the interest or the skill set to, to manage their personal finances at some point because it's just beyond them. It's too complex. And when you get into issues like retirement or like health savings. Um, so, you know, we, we know who we serve. Um, we don't necessarily have to go out and sell it. We just have to, you know, be able to articulate to people how we can help them when they realize that they have a problem. You know, people can self-identify. Um, at, at My Financial Answers, which is, you know, same business, same problem we're solving, we're reaching a different audience, though, and we have to do that at, mu- at a much higher volume. Um, and so, you know, while we can, you know, have people, and we do have people that find us online and sign up uh, for the service, and, and uh, that, that's one way to grow the business, um, because we don't have, you know, $50 million, we didn't raise institutional venture capital, that's not, the, that's not our path to market. I'm not, we're not out trying to build a, a business digitally, uh, just costs too much money. And so we set out to figure out how do we reach these people that we know exist that have problems that, that you know, same problems as people at Cyprus, uh, but don't really have the access to a Cyprus because the business model doesn't lend itself to helping these people. And we realized there were two ways we could reach those individuals. We could reach them uh, through, um, uh, you know, th- through direct to consumer, or we could go to their employers uh, where they work, who, by the way, sort of already own most of their personal financial life. They own their salary. They own their you know, group life insurance. They own their 401k. They own their health savings. They provide all those things as an employee benefit. And they also um, have been shifting responsibility from these employees to make decisions around all that stuff, right? There's no pension anymore. There's a 401k. There's no traditional health plan that's, you know, a $5 copay. There's a high deductible health plan that's, you know, $600 a month premium plus, you know, a health savings account that you need to contribute to or, or should contribute to. And so at the same time, the employees have the problem. It's, it's becoming a bigger problem because employers are shifting this responsibility. Mm. And we realized that the best way that we could reach a lot of people, because we have to in this business model, was to go through uh, uh, through employers that employ those people to be able to access them and, and you know, build trust with them and, um, and help them in the same way that we help individuals at Cyprus. And so Interestingly, when we, uh, you know, we were calling on employers, we did an onsite event uh, at Facebook. And yeah, I was like, just about to ask their, about that. Yep. Yeah, at their headquarters. Um, you know, we did a pilot with Tesla Motors, uh, you know, the, the electric car company and now battery company. And I thought that's where we would build this business. Um, and what I realized was that I, I thought they had the budget dollars and the wherewithal to implement a new benefit. And what I realized was, number one, it's an extremely long sales cycle. And I probably should have known this before. And I didn't know it. I just thought we could overcome it. But it's a, it was an extremely long sales cycle. And number two, what companies would say to us, both large and small, is, hey, Ben, we know our employees need that help. 
that is a problem that, that needs solving, but why don't you go talk to Fidelity? Or why don't you go talk to Vanguard, the people that are already helping us mm-hmm. you know, provide benefits packages, whether it be a 401k or a health savings account or you know, uh, whatever benefit that, that's being provided. There were consultants, Aon Hewitt, Mercer, why don't you go talk to those guys? And so it's funny, Greg, the, the problem that while our vision as a business and our mission as a business is to help the individuals like my parents and you know people like a lot of people listening on this call, just normal normal Americans that aren't wealthy, that's our vision, that's our passion. You can look at our website and see that it comes through. Uh, as we built the business, because we couldn't go direct to consumer, you know, with you know a, a Super Bowl commercial, we can't you can't afford it, and because the sales cycle going to employers was so long we realized, man, there's another group that we can solve this problem for. And that happens to be not Vanguard or Fidelity, but think of any small business in America that's got 50 or 100 or 300 employees. Ah. They've got somebody running their 401k plan. Mm. And that someone is usually an advisor, a financial advisor, that has both a wealth management practice as well as, you know, they might manage 10, 50, 150 401k plans for small businesses. Um, And those guys while they would like to be helpful to the employees that work at those companies, they don't have the the tool, the system that scales and allows them to service each of those individual employees with a service like we're talking about. And so when you talk about selling and solving a problem, while our vision and mission is to solve the problem for the individual, man, when we started when we started trying to partner with these 401k plan advisors and other benefit brokers that need to do three things. They need to differentiate their service from large competitors and mm-hmm. other competitors in the marketplace. They need to be able to keep the 401k plans that they have and win new ones. Uh, they need to figure out how do we how do we how do we help these individual participants, these employees at these companies, in a more scalable way, and you know just, just provide good service to them. And number three, how do we grow our revenue? Right, they're in a business that the, the margins are shrinking um, in the 401k space. It's a it's sort of a complex industry. But all of a sudden, Greg, after you know a, a while of trying to sell this to employers directly, I realized, oh my goodness, here's the problem to solve. These guys have an immediate need, uh, and you know, and the product you know is now sort of selling itself. It's very clear to these 401k advisors how we can help them accomplish their mission while also accomplishing our mission. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so again, you know, this, this is sort of the, the struggle of being an entrepreneur. Man, if I could, I'd snap my fingers and have a line of you know, <laughs> 10,000 consumers that, 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 that are willing to sit down and talk to, uh, to our team and, and, and uh, you know, let, allow us to do what we've done for so many people at, at, at Cyprus. Um, but given the, the revenue model and given the, the, the volume that we have to do, we had to figure out how do we do that in a more scalable way. And that was you know, ultimately figuring out how do you solve a problem? That's how you sell. If mm-hmm. you can figure out what, what problem can I solve or what problem am I solving – your product will sell itself as long as you're able to solve that problem. So that's probably a long, long-winded answer, but uh, no, I got I got a lot from it. I think the, the, one of the biggest things you you're very clear on is it took a while, but you finally you found your ideal customer, and then you stayed in that pocket. And I think that's where a lot of us miss the boat. Um, I can speak personally as a speaker. Uh, a lot of times when I first started, I never really thought about it like that, but I thought that. Instagram and Twitter followers and all that stuff was a was some sort of barometer. But then once you got into the industry from really professionals, I mean, I know professional speakers, they don't have any social media. Some they have two hundred. The real biggest thing is reaching the right clients. And mm-hmm. it's crazy now that now I know what I know now. And I have a, a lot of young speakers coming in the game and they say, hey, Greg, how do I get a increase my account on X, X, Y and Z? I said, dude, 
you're focusing on the wrong things. Focus on, first of all, who is your market? Your market is high school. Where they, high schools? Okay. Where the principals at? Where the, they're in public schools at? Like where, like pitch to them. I was, man, I was emailing every principal in the country, not realizing that every, every principal in the country get a thousand emails. Like they, and they're not even the decision makers on that. So then I didn't even know like who was the decision makers and I didn't, there's a lot of stuff I didn't know. And now I operate, I, I, I operate on a whole different level. But it just kills me that that people come in and they just really don't know who their customer is, how to reach them, or how they like to be reached, what their problems are, and it just takes it takes a lot of doing. Like like you said, if it wasn't for doing that Facebook and Tesla event and 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 talking to those companies, you would never may have thought of the pivot so soon. But I mean, I just it's a challenge for anybody out there that's struggling to to, to, to delve up business is to just to make sure that you are doing your best, doing your best to get inside the shoes. Like he said earlier, get inside the shoes of the customer and then seeing where they're at, what, 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 what are their needs and making sure your, your solution, uh, fits their needs. Um, I think that's good that's too, right. man. Yeah. I think it's, you know, for us, it's, it's, it's a little bit challenging because at the end of the day, the service and the offering that we have is still for individuals. And so we have to figure, we have to continually, provide the service to individuals, um, add value uh, so that, number one, they say, hey, this is a great service. I like it. We can continue to improve the, the service offering. And number three, they can refer you know, their HR exec, their HR uh, director. Hey, I just went to this service. I know they offer you know, this service to employers. Have you guys ever thought about offering this to you know, me and all of my colleagues? So you, know, it's, <clears throat> you can't focus on what your, what your mission is and your vision, and ours is all about individuals. Uh, not necessarily about the employer itself, um, but uh, you know, every business is unique, so you just have to focus on what what, what your own unique challenges are. Yeah, man, <clears throat> I love that. I love that. And as we before we get to our last round, the culture change round, I want to ask specifically for those in our audience that um, that range from twenty two to thirty five, and um, they're they're looking for financial advice because many of us don't. I mean, we have our 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 employers and whatnot, but we just want more more hands on advice or whatnot. Can you walk us through kind of your offerings and what does it look like to so say what your packages does it look like? Uh, what is the tools like? What can you give us a, a sneak peek on what is working with a company like yourself? What does it look like? Yeah. So, um, I mean, <clears throat> what people should do, I mean, at the end of the day, personal finance, <clears throat> it's personal. It's extremely unique uh, and different people have different goals. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, I don't care if you're 25 or 35 or 55. Uh, the reality is the, the most important thing you can do is be intentional about it. And that really means just taking some action. And so most people actually lack uh, any sort of roadmap or full picture of what their personal finances look like. Um, you know, they, they, they don't have a, a, a really good sense of, um, you know, kind of where they would be if they continue to make their same decisions a year from now or two years from now or 20 years from now. Um, they don't necessarily, if I ask somebody, Hey, how much money are you spending each month and how much is left over? Most people don't know that answer to that question. And it's not because they don't want to know that answer. It's because they don't have the tools, uh, to, uh, to answer that question. Personal finance is complex. You know, are we talking about paying bills? Are we talking about, you know, investing or saving? What I'm talking about is all of those things and having, um, you know, having all of that sort of in a single, in a single roadmap. Um, and so, um, you know, the, 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 the key is to get, is to just get started. Uh, the reality is that most people don't sort of know where to start. And if I had 10 people ask me, where should I start? 
my answer to ten of the all ten people might be a little bit different, right? It mm-hmm. kind of depends on who you are. Um, you know, do you have student loans? Do you, you know, uh, are you making enough income to pay your bills? Uh, you know, do you have a specific goal that you have in mind? And so, what, what what we offer is the first part of our service is actually what we call a rapid review session, uh, which is a a free uh, fifteen to thirty minute session where we have a phone call with somebody, um, no preparation required. Uh, we ask them a handful of questions about who they are, what they're trying to accomplish, um, and we point them in the right direction. And so for someone who's 25 years old, the, the answer might actually be really simple, and there might not be a product or a service that you need from us, right? But it's our opportunity to build a relationship with that person to point them in the right direction so that you know when they do need help you know, five years down the road or six years down the road or they have a family member that needs help, they might think of us and, and refer and refer us to or refer them to us. Um, and so, uh, again, rapid review session for that 25 year old who has no student loans, you know, they might be asking like, where should I put my money? A 401k? And the answer might be yes, put it in your 401k. You don't need to do anything else. Um, you know, for them, there's no product or service for somebody who's 45 who takes part in a rapid review session and they start to tell us things like, you know, I'm just about to pay off my student loans and, um, you know, I want to send my kids, my, you know, my three kids to college. I'm not sure quite how to do that. I also am starting to think about retirement. You know, how do I sort of pull all these pieces together? That is someone who's who who is a good candidate for um, you know for our uh, financial coaching service. And using you know, we need to use our technology to look at the complexity of that situation and be able to advise them um, in a way that's uh, you know that's robust and and give them really sound financial advice, specific actionable recommendations. Put this much in your four hundred one k. Put that much in a Roth IRA. Make sure you're contributing to your HSA at this amount and, you know, oh, by the way, this is how you might want to invest your 401k. So very, very specific guidance that we can only give if we know as much about that person as we can possibly know. Um, and then, you know, there are people in between, right? There's somebody who just, you know, just got married, uh, just had their first child. Their life isn't overly complex, but they want to be on the right path. They want to make sure they're making the right decisions. And that, that's complex enough to uh, to use our service. So we offer the rapid review session to sort of I think you can think of it like a, a physician. The rapid review session allows us to be a general practitioner, mm-hmm. um, to do a quick diagnosis, to do a quick assessment, uh, and point them in the right direction. And for some of those people, it's, hey, you know, check back later when, you know, if something else happens and we might be able to help you then. For some people, it's like, hey, you need to see the specialist, and the specialist is the certified financial planner, and here's some paperwork we need you to fill out <laughs> on your way to <laughs> our, our software. And so the, the packages that we offer, there, there are um, anyone can sign up for a free trial for, for our software um, just for the technology alone. Um, I will tell you that, that, that using the te- there are people that are sophisticated that can use our technology to get value and make decisions, and they can purchase uh, you know, the free trial uh, is for a limited time. They can purchase the software and continue to use it. And we, you know, we do sell that product for ninety nine dollars for the year. Um, the other two products, though, are are software plus either one session or two sessions per year with a financial coach. Um, and the top subscription today is six hundred and forty nine dollars per year. Um, and so, you know, somebody if, if you had someone that wanted to go to a financial planner and have a financial plan built, the average fee to have an, a financial planner in you know Durham, North Carolina, or uh, Philadelphia, New Jersey is about $1,900, Woo! right? Which is a steep price. Uh, uh, we're offering the same thing, um, for, you know, top subscription for two calls with a, with a, with a financial planner to go over your entire situation. 
uh, two times for a year, $649. Um, and we can only do that because we've built the technology to be able to allow you to connect your accounts. And that gives us your interest rate on your mortgage. It gives us your mortgage payment. Um, uh, you don't have to connect your accounts. You can tell us all that manually. But we can collect all that data in a way that is efficient. And it also happens to, for you know, for people like me and you, Gen X and millennials, you actually have a view of your own personal finances, right? Like in, in the past, financial advisors would sort of hand you a, a piece of paper and, you know, they sort of owned it. Now you actually own this financial plan. It's yours. You can, you can not call us anymore if you don't want. It's, it's your, it's your data. Uh, here it is. So that's, uh, that's how the service works. The idea was to create a, a subscription based model that's affordable, uh, so people can get the broad financial help they need. Um, we're also moving in the direction of also being able to have a tool that people can actually manage their day-to-day finances. You know, you have to pay your bills, you have to keep track of your credit cards, you have to, um, you know, sort of manage the day-to-day. Our tool today is not for that. We're actually uh, partnering with a company that that uh, that does allow sort of the day-to-day, mm-hmm. um, you know, that day-to-day management. And the holy grail is being able to combine those two things. If you can look at all of your personal finances from the decision I make today, this next minute, all the way through the next 30 years, like that's that's a pretty powerful tool. So that's what we're working on doing now. Man, I love that. I can't wait to see when it really rolls out. Uh, man, yeah, there's a there's a lot. There's a, there's a whole other podcast as far as dedicated towards um, the, what a lot of our culture sees in value. Um, because a lot of, you say I number six four nine, which is really not that much for something that can really can change your financial life. But some may say, whoa, or even 99 is like for a whole year. What do you mean? What a who? And then it's like, just like even speaking, it's crazy. I had one conversation. I didn't pay for this because it was a friend of mine. But as far as my, what my speaking rates were, one conversation helped quadruple my speaking rates. It really changed my whole year. And if he would have charged me $100, I would have paid it. 500 for an hour, I would have paid it. But if he would have said $500 and, oh, here's my rate for an hour, Many people be like, what? Especially somebody like reputable. What? What do you mean? 500? That's not But that's going to make you five, 10,000 right in a yeah. year. So, but that's neither here nor that's a whole nother podcast as far as kind of help reorient what we see as value. Um, yeah. and stuff like that. And that's just so deep. And I, that's, it, it has so many soul ties with a lot of different things that we don't have the time, um, or the energy to discuss at this moment. But, uh, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. No, it's all about value. I mean, you have to, I feel very comfortable that what we're doing, we're providing plenty of value. And I think it's the same with you with, with, uh, you know, with speaking and, you know, oftentimes, you know, as, as the entrepreneur, you wish you could do it for less, but at the end of the day, um, you, know, you have to charge it based on what the value is and what's the alternative, you know, like $1,900. Um, so, uh, so value is, uh, the value is strong. So I love, that. I love that, man. So as we close, we got a rapid fire round. We have five rapid fire questions. I need rapid fire answers. You ready to rock? Let's do it. Yeah. What's the best, what's the best piece of advice that you have never received? Hmm. Best piece of advice I've never received. Um, Actually, be an entrepreneur. <laughs> nobody, nobody ever told me to do that, um, <clears throat> and I think I don't think enough people try it. You know, it's just something that I think a lot of people look at you crazy. I'm sure you have it, Greg. People are like, "Why, Greg? Why are you doing that?" Or at least before, right before you were, uh, you know, having um, massive success. Uh, I remember one of my friends asked me one day. Um, 
so are you making money? You know, it's like, what? <laughs> why would I, why would I be not sure? So, but I, I think more people need to try it. I really do. Yeah. If you make money, I mean, I, I wouldn't just leave Goldman Sachs just and just <laughs> sit on my laurels and raise a family. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, this was like two years after I left Goldman Sachs. You know, so. If you can mm-hmm. add one habit and take away one habit, what would they be? Uh, um, if I could add a habit, uh, I would read more um, and read more about history. I'm not, I, I've never been an avid reader. Uh, and oftentimes I wish I, I wish I were, um, you know, I, I do a lot of reading, doing research for my business, but I don't, I, I don't pick up books and, and read a whole lot just for sort of fun and to relax. Um, take away, um, I, I, this podcast has been long and part of that's because I'm verbose. Uh, I'd probably cut down on the length of my answers, uh, both, uh, in writing as well as, uh, um, in rapid fire sessions like this one. <laughs> no, nah, you bet. You better than me. I say, hey, you gotta take me in all the glory. Like I'm like I'm like Yeezy in a sense. Like I'm not I'm not about to shortcut anything. You gonna get what you gonna get. Uh, you just gotta. That's why you just gotta produce on a high level so you can just you, you can be like that. Like you ain't gonna tell Jay Z, hey, no, we gonna have this podcast for an hour. Jay Z gonna be like, when I stop talking, is when we gonna end this thing. So <laughs> I love the length of your podcast. That's actually one of the you can get deep. It's 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 actually really a lot more valuable than a twenty minute podcast. Yeah, it's yeah. I'm t- you tell tell me, tell me, tell me. Um, what is your favorite book and why? And I know uh, well, you just said you want to start adding reading, and now it's like, what's your favorite book? No, today it's Traction. Actually, I mean, Boom. this is a, I, I do read a lot of business books. Okay, uh, and, and Traction is the one I mentioned earlier. Um, you know, it's called Traction: Get a Grip on Your Business. Uh, and I think probably a lot of people listen to your podcast are entrepreneurs, and I think that every single I don't I'm, I don't get paid for saying it. I think every single one of them should at least read it to to learn how they could simplify their business management. Love that. Love that. Love that. Love that. Last two. What is your biggest fear? Um, my biggest fear is not having an impact. Um, I mean, I make every decision every day to have an impact. And, uh, you know, as entrepreneurs, we, uh, you know, we thrive on, uh, on wanting to have that impact on building something from scratch and then, you know, it's, it's, it's frankly what drives me. Um, and, uh, I think I would regret it if I didn't try to have that impact, but I think part of my fear is trying to have an impact and not being able to execute the way I wanted to and, and failing to, to have the impact. Mm, mm, I love that. And, um, a last question before we do our customary culture change question is if you were the president of the United States, what's the first thing you would do? Mm. Um, Wow. I'd probably just sit down and talk to normal people. Mm. <laughs> I don't think I don't think presidents do that enough, whether it's uh, our current president or past presidents. Um, you know, presidents tend to be disconnected uh, from what's actually going on in the world. And they're obviously busy people. Um, but I think, you know, whether it's the president, politicians in general, this goes back to my philosophy on leadership. Um, which is, uh, you know, to, to lead by example and don't, don't do things that, you know, you wouldn't expect people that you're leading to do. And I think in a lot of cases, presidents and politicians today are asking American people to do things that they wouldn't personally do. Um, and so I think they might stop that if they actually had deep relationship with, you know, real human beings, real mm-hmm. 
Americans. So that is uh, that is one of the best uh, best answers that I've heard, man. Um, that's real. That's real. That's real. And then yeah. as we close it out, as we close it out, I call myself the culture change agent, and every single person that comes on this podcast is a culture change agent in their own right. If you could change one thing about society, most specifically our African American culture, what would it be and why? Yeah, I mean, I could probably get blasted for this answer, <laughs> um, but you know, African American culture in general, um, you know, I think for a long time, African Americans have have been um, you know, have been victims of a, a lot of negative things that have happened. You know, you can look back to slavery and uh, you know, civil rights or lack thereof. Um, and, 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 you know, a lot of that legacy, uh, all of that legacy still impacts young, you know, black and brown kids today, no doubt about it. Um, you know, ghettos exist, you know, kids are growing up without fathers, um, all because of, I mean, it all, it all goes back to those issues that existed, you know, just cult, cultural, uh, intentional desire to hurt the African-American culture in America uh, and it's 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 terrible, but I think the reality is is that I was listening to uh, actually NPR this morning. The reality is is that people today don't really care, and it's not because they it's not because they don't want to care or they have negative feelings. And I'm not talking about minority. I'm talking about you know the majority in the country don't really care, and it's not because they're bad people necessarily. I mean, some people are, but most people are not bad people. They have their own self-interest, right? Like, are they going to decide, like, think about affirmative action. Do I want to, to tell my young white son that he can't go to this college because we need to open a slot for this young black kid? And, I mean, it'd be great if they, if they felt the need to sacrifice, but I think people are self-interested. Like, I don't care if you're black, brown, yellow, um, red, you're, or white, you're self-interested. And so... <clears throat> Unfortunately, I don't think people will change our culture for us or help. Uh, I don't think, by and large, policy is really going to dictate uh, our culture's success. And frankly, Greg, I think it's people like you that say, I'm going to change the culture, that are going to change the culture by, by actually doing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it doesn't mean we don't, that doesn't mean we don't, um, we don't advocate for policy for you know, things like affirmative action or um, you know, trying to make a level playing field. I think we just have to recognize that those things can only do to, so much and we have to change the culture from within. Um, you know, we have to be the father to the fatherless kids in our community. We have to be the business mentor, uh, for the young kids that are, that are, that are in, that are growing up in college. We have to be the ones that are helping them study. We have to be the ones that, uh, that change our culture and lift ourselves up because I don't think anybody else is going to do that for us. And history is, history has shown us. Certainly there are people from the majority that, uh, we'll do more than others, and, and and God bless them. I mean, that's a big reason that civil rights was able to get through was because of a lot of um, folks that that were helpful to that cause that that weren't black or brown. But I think it is it's incumbent upon uh, upon us people that um, you know that have figured out a way to lift ourselves up a little bit and, and continue to push that forward and and just have a culture of um, you know just a do it mentality. Uh, we, we don't need to depend on other people to. Uh, to give us a chance. And I think entrepreneur, uh, entrepreneurship is, it, it's really the path there, right? Like politicians uh, aren't going to be able to do it for us. It's like people that are uh, successful in the world that decide to, um, you know, pass that success on by giving opportunity to, uh, to people that 
sort of look like that. I mean, look, if you, if you went to Harvard, that's exactly what you did for other kids at Harvard, right? Mm-hmm. So that's what we need to be doing for our culture. And, you know, obviously it'll take time, um, but uh, I feel like it's a culture of, uh, of, of self-dependence, independence, um, and um, you know, not in a negative way, uh, but just in a, hey, this is just reality. Nobody's going to do it for us. Mm, I love that. I love that, man. So first, uh, before before we go, can you share with our audience where we can find your company at and yourself at on, on social media and uh, more so the website information and potentially sign up for stuff and just to hear more about what you offer? Yeah, I'm personally on LinkedIn and, and, and Twitter and, and uh, Facebook, and I'll share all that stuff with you, Greg, so you can post it. Um, people can find us on our website, which is uh, myfinancialanswers.com. Uh, I'll actually share um, a, a link with you as well okay. uh, to offer a, a discount to to listeners that want to sign up for the sign up for the service. Of course, anyone listening is is welcome to sign up for a rapid review session and and just have a chat with uh, with one of our planners as well. So I'll, I'll provide some links for that. But uh, the website is myfinancialanswers.com. Uh, you can always reach us, uh, reach us through that. All right, man. So first and foremost, make sure you check that out. Everything will be in the show notes as far as uh, codes, websites, links, and all that information. And um, on behalf of the Minority Trailblazer audience, and specifically myself, man, thank you for your time, man. I really appreciate it, brother. Yeah, no, congrats to you, Greg. Congrats on all the successful seasons, the podcast tour. Uh, the upcoming conference. I got to get one of those hoodies. I'm going to go online and buy one of your hoodies, man. Those look sharp. So, uh, but I appreciate you having me on. Thank you. No doubt, no doubt, no doubt. So, my Northern Trailblazer Nation, definitely extend the love. And uh, you already know, as I always do it, as I always do it, I say do two things or two things only. What is that? First, make sure you subscribe and share it with a friend. And two, change the culture. Good night. My bad, my bad, my bad. I almost forgot. I almost forgot. If you enjoyed this show, make sure you go to myfinancialanswers.com and get your free rapid review session. Also, if you would like a discount on a one-year subscription or one-on-one financial coaching, make sure you send an email to info at myfinancialanswers.com and put in the subject line MTB discount. Or if you don't remember all this, you can talk to me on LinkedIn or Benjamin Pinson. It'll get you squared away, all right? Minority Trailblazer Nations, have a great week. Make sure you subscribe, leave a review, buy a hoodie, register for the conference, and change the freaking culture again.